Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Joining us today is Charlene Willis, author of You Are Enough, Reclaiming Your Career and Your Life with Purpose, Passion, and Unapologetic Authenticity. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Charlene. Charlene Wheelis is the founder of her namesake firm, Charlene Wheelis LLC. She is a renowned business and communications professional, author, speaker, and executive and life empowerment advisor. Additionally, she is the senior advisor for equity and justice at APCO Worldwide, a global advocacy and communications consultancy. Wheelis is the chairman of the board of trustees for the Page Society and the HCA Virginia Reston Hospital, and serves on other industry and community boards as well. She has received numerous awards for communications and leadership excellence throughout her career, including being named to the PR Week Global Power Book for Most Influential Professionals in Public Relations and the Network Journal's Most Influential Black Women in Business. Many business, industry, and lifestyle publications have featured Wheelis for her expertise and as a contributing writer. Before launching her consultancy and following a four-year health crisis, Wheelis retired from corporate America as the principal vice president of global corporate affairs for Bechtel Corporation, a $40 billion global firm. In her words, cancer changed me, so I changed my world. To learn more about Charlene and her work, visit her website at charlenewheelis.biz. Well, hi, Charlene. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, let's just jump right in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your book, You Are Enough? Wow. Okay. Well, you know, the book is, uh, I I think I've told people before, it's like three books in one. And (laughs) it's part, you know, memoir. I really wanted to talk about what I consider the the real story around cancer uh, and what um, living with cancer means. Uh, because so many people don't talk about it. And then there's a big part of the book that's how to in the um, strategies or lessons I learned climbing the corporate ladder as a black female executive Mm -hmm. and turning that into strategies for others. And then I think it's also a life lessons book, you know, after climbing the corporate ladder for decades and coming from a background where I'm the first and only one in my family to have gone to college And coming off of cancer, I realized that I was very different and I had to figure out, well, how do you pivot and how do you turn your life into something completely different than what you thought it was going to be? And how do you find the courage to do that? And so I wrapped all of that into one book. Yeah, I love the way you wrapped it all into one book. What inspired you to actually sit down and write your story? Yeah, you know, and it's funny because I didn't aspire to being an author. And so writing a book was never something I really thought I'd do. You know, my most frustrated times at work, I would say, you know, I'm going to write a book about this one day. (laughs) Yeah, But you never really mean it. (laughs) And it was really a convergence of things. Uh, You know, I had breast cancer, stage two breast cancer um, that had moved into my lymph nodes, which meant my treatment was going to be a little bit more involved Mm -hmm. than I had expected. 
And it was supposed to be seven months and it turned into nearly four years of treatment. And I realized that I was so prepared for fighting for my life in the beginning, but I couldn't have been less prepared for what life was going to be after treatment. Mm -hmm. And so I felt this burning need to talk about that because I thought I'm a really strong person. And if I'm struggling, others are struggling. And I fell into a pretty deep depression after uh, treatment. And it didn't make sense to me because everyone says, oh, well, you should be so happy. You just beat cancer. Mm. And, and, you know, quite frankly, I wanted to die. I just didn't want to die from cancer. And so it was that. And at the same time, I had returned back to work. And, you know, I guess when I went back to work, I had a completely different lens on it. And I was tired of pretending to be okay all the time with the macroaggressions, the microaggressions, the oversights, and everybody would just pretend like it wasn't happening. And nobody wanted to talk about it because of the fear of, well, what will that do to my career if I talk about it? And I guess after coming back from cancer and having the realization, I just really felt emboldened that I had a voice and I had a story to tell, but I wasn't sure how I was going to tell it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up leaving my job because I could not do that high powered job anymore. And I literally woke up one day and I know this sounds crazy, but I'm a, a religious person and a Christian. And God told me that I'm supposed to write a book. Mm. I'm not one of those people when something really bad happens to you, you kind of look up at the sky and you say, why me, God, why are you doing this to me? I'm not one of those people, mm-hmm. but I did spend a lot of time thinking about what am I supposed to do with this and when. And when the idea came up for me to write a book, it was very clear to me that that's what I was meant to do. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I wrote the book in two months. Oh, my goodness. uh, Yeah. Which to me didn't seem like a very big deal until I talked to other authors who said, wait, I've been writing a book for two years. (laughs) And so that was just more encouragement for me to know that I was now living my purpose and doing what I was supposed to be doing. Absolutely. Talk about divine inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of gives me the chills. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of been the story of my life, really. There's so many times, uh, again, I, I come from a fairly rough neighborhood in Oakland, California, and you know, put myself through school. And there are so many times to go left. Mm. And for some reason, and I consider it divine intervention, made me go right. Mm. And all of that has led me to where I am. Yeah, wow. So it kind of just happened. Well, the writing part, it, it sounds like it just happened. You sat down and you were almost given the words. You knew what you oh, wanted I'm, to write, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it poured out of me. And I think, too, part of it is that I, I wasn't trying to tell a story. I was just trying to tell a truth. Mm. And so I was never hung up on you know, is this interesting enough? Have I used enough adjectives or whatever? You know, it was really that I had a story to tell and I wanted to tell it authentically. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a good story, but that's not how I set out about it. (laughs) Yeah. I think actually the way you went about it, you know, not stressing, because I feel like a lot of authors stress about it is this good enough? Are my readers going to be able to relate to this? You know, blah, blah, blah. But just the authentic aspect of just 
laying it all out there really worked for you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't know if anybody would actually buy and read the book other than my immediate family. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. You know, so I've been pleased that others have really found value in the book. That has just been so gratifying. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, there's something you said earlier that just kind of struck me uh, when you were talking about how different it was when you returned to the workplace. It kind of reminded me of a death, I guess, in a way, in that it's it's similar in that it's a loss. How did you work through that grief? You know, there's a part in my book where I talk about one of the lessons I learned was that I had to forgive myself for getting cancer mm. and that I had to accept my new life because, and in order to accept your new life, you have to grieve the old one Mm -hmm. because I thought, you know, as strong as I am, I'm going to treat this like a project. And that project is going to be seven months long. And once that's over, I'm going to walk back into the life I had as though nothing ever happened. Yeah. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And it wasn't until I faced that I was not the same person and I was able to grieve and accept that I never would be again, that I was able to move forward. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't prepared for that. It right. That took some time. It sounds like your initial reaction to the news was, okay, I've got this, you know, I've got a plan, I'm going to beat this. And I think that kind of attitude makes all the difference as well. Oh, absolutely. I think your attitude makes a difference from the day you were diagnosed until the day that you die, whenever that is, mm-hmm. you know, and I was speaking with a friend yesterday who called me, she's just been diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And I'll tell you one of the huge blessings of having gone through all of this and having been so public about it is that so many people call me when they've been diagnosed or someone close to them has been diagnosed. And I'm always more than happy to just put everything aside and help them through their entire journey as, as much as I can. Yeah. And I was asking her some questions and I said to her, uh, she couldn't answer many of them. And I said, don't worry. I know that the minute you hear the words, you have cancer, the conversation may go on for 30 more minutes, but you don't hear a thing that's sad. Mm. And it, you know, it takes a couple of weeks for you to kind of get your mind straight as to what is going to be your mindset as you go through this. And that mindset is so important. Absolutely. So earlier, you mentioned You Are Enough being three books in one, memoir, how-to, and life lessons. Can you talk about the how-to strategies and the life lessons and how readers can incorporate those lessons into their own lives? Yeah, it's a little different, I guess, because I turned my lessons into strategies for other people. I have this keynote that I give called Lessons from Being Invisible. Mm. And in there, I talk about how as a black woman climbing the corporate ladder at the time I did, how easily you are made to feel invisible. And so from the, the business part of the book, You know, I just wanted to create, you know, some lessons around how people can climb that ladder more sanely. And so I wanted to help people with that. But on the flip side of it, with the, quite frankly, the white male hierarchy, you know, and the patriarchy that's in position, 
CEOs and C-suite people often talk about the importance of diversity and their commitment to it, but they don't understand what that black or brown employee is actually experiencing, you know, at whatever is their ground level. And so I wanted to put those stories out there and have those leaders read the book so that they could understand what the experience really is. Mm -hmm. And have you had feedback from the white male hierarchy? Yes, and it has been astounding. And I tell you, the first person to point out that value in the book was actually Alan Murray, who is the CEO of Fortune magazine. Wow. And he wrote a testimonial for the book. And he called me after and uh, he said, Charlene, your tendency is going to be to market this book to women and minority women, but I need you to market this book to white male leaders Mm. because they need to understand what is really happening in their organizations and why their black employees are frustrated. That's amazing. Yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, he was really great. And and he was really passionate about it, that this is a really, really important book. And so that was great. That was great to hear. And since then, other male leaders who have written the book have pretty much said the same thing. They've said, I I thought I was reading a book about one woman's journey. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much education is in the book. And how much I needed to change my focus on DE&I in my company. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that has been really cool. Yeah, I love that these business leaders are finding your book. Did you self-publish? I used a hybrid publisher, not a vanity press. I always like to make the difference between right. them. And I tell you, one of the reasons why I went the hybrid route is because I felt very strongly about what I wanted to say. And I was not concerned about a commercial book. I was concerned about delivering a message. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really concerned, you know, because, you know, other than being a business leader, you know, I'm not a politician. I don't have this name that's on the tip of everybody's tongue. And I really felt that a traditional publisher might push me towards something that would be more commercially viable over the message that I had to say. Right, right. Well, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's a good call. And you, you retain more rights that way to your content and all. So mm-hmm. yeah. So my point behind the self-publishing question was that it's difficult as a self-published author to get your name out there. But one testimonial from Fortune mm-hmm. magazine, you know, that could just like set the whole all the wheels in motion. Yeah. And it was really interesting because, you know, I'd never written a book, so I had no idea about the publishing process. And I I actually didn't realize that I would be responsible for asking people to (laughs) to write this if they wanted to write a testimonial. And I have this, I don't think it's in my book, but I talk a lot about, I think it's in my keynote about seven seconds of courage. And with just seven seconds of courage, you can begin to change your life. And so I applied that to sending off notes to people about reading and considering a testimonial on my book. Mm. And, you know, and Alan Murray was one I knew of him in my professional world as a communicator, but by all means, I wouldn't have said that we were friends. And, you know, I said, I'm just going to tap into my seven seconds of courage and I'm going to write that email. I'm going to take a deep breath. And I'm going to send it before I even have a chance to talk myself out of it. 
Wow. <laughs> and it paid off. And that's how I make a lot of decisions in my life, actually. Yeah. yeah. So that's a keynote address? You yes. Is that- yes. I, a keynote where I talk about two themes that are in my book. One, of course, is it's choice, not chance that changes your life. And the follow on to that is find your seven seconds of courage to make the decisions that you need to make to create the life you want. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like you're getting a lot of responses on both your journey through cancer and uh, your business story. Would you say that people are responding more to one over the other? Yeah, it kind of depends, right? Uh What makes the difference is why people pick up the book, right? So some people will pick up the book because of the cancer journey. And then usually the response that I get back is, oh my gosh, I learned so much more than I ever thought when I thought I was just picking up a cancer book. And then other people will say, I picked up your book for a business reason. And I think most people pick it up for the business reason. Mm. And then they'll come back to me and say, oh my gosh, I learned so much about life and my life and meaning their lives Mm -hmm. and and making decisions and, you know, being in control of my life. So sometimes it varies in why people picked up the book, but the experience that they share with me after is almost always the same. And it's in appreciation of all sides of the book. Mm, That's nice. That's nice. So how is your marketing going, (laughs) your marketing efforts? (laughs) You know, it's so funny because I have been a communications professional my whole life. And if a CEO came up to me and said, I'm writing a book and I need you to write my marketing plan, I could probably turn it around to him or her, usually him. But, you know, (laughs) in a week, writing a marketing plan for yourself is so completely different. (laughs) And it's so much harder So, you know, I use a lot of um, social media, primarily LinkedIn and Instagram, not so much to promote my book, but to promote my views, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I, I think it's some of the, you know, the more traditional things that people do, which is, you know, you hope for media interviews, you send out press releases when they make sense. A lot of my book has been word of mouth and people finding it on Amazon. So, you know, I think when the book initially launched, my publisher and another company that I had, you know, did a lot to kind of raise visibility more so than marketing the book. But I tell you, I have not talked to one person who has written a book who isn't prolific in writing books who has said to me, boy, the marketing is so easy and I've got that down. Right. Right. Everyone I've talked to expresses dissatisfaction about the marketing process. Yeah. It's like a second job. You know, I think a lot of authors go into it saying, I've got to write a book and then let it sell and reap the Mm -hmm. rewards, you know, but there's so much more. Right. Well, and there are so many people who make decisions along the way. You know, my book is available in Barnes and Noble. I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm -hmm. And so there are four or five Barnes and Noble that actually carry my book on their shelves. There's a Barnes and Noble three miles from me. They don't carry the book. (laughs) Right? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And I said, but I'm a local author to you. Yeah. You know, and it's just, you know, it's their independent decision, I guess. Huh. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Now, I do find, particularly as more people are focused on 
diversity and how to manage with compassion and return to work, I find that I get more requests for bulk orders. Mm. Yeah, which is nice. And then often people will say, hey, can you come speak to our group? So it it feeds itself. And then I have an arm of um, executive coaching that I do as well. Okay, so you do have other resources available to readers after they finish your book. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and I, I certainly encourage people to reach out to me, especially young people who just need a little bit of guidance. And then for my executive clients, you know, one thing I realized as I just kind of sit back and, and think about things and things I've experienced, it's very clear to me that often the, what I'll call the C-suite does not know how to create an environment for their diverse employees and women to succeed. Mm-hmm. And often your high potential minority and female talent, they don't know how to navigate the C-suite. Um, and I've done both. Right. So I'm kind of right there in the middle. So from a coaching perspective, that's really where I focus on. And I'd say more of my coaching is done with that C-suite leader trying to help them understand how to create the culture. But I also coach on the other side as well. And that has been really gratifying and, and not something that I had expected that I would be doing. Right. I love reading memoirs, especially ones like yours, because it helps readers to understand they're not alone. Um, right. Other people go through the same thing. And look what this woman did and how she got through it you know, maybe I can do that too. It, mm-hmm. it provides hope. I oh, love. absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I had a great conversation with someone a couple of days ago at an event that I had attended and he was telling me about how they've improved their DEI program and particularly with their women and underrepresented uh, employees from underrepresented groups. They have quarterly meetings with them to talk with them about what is it that they want to achieve what kind of support do they need, et cetera, so that they have more conversations with them. And I had said to him, that sounds really great. But in that questioning, perhaps you should think about asking people in those groups, you know, what is it that they want to do that they aren't sure is available to them? Mm. I said, I think that's a more important question because if you're in a big company and nobody in the top two tiers looks like you, Mm -hmm then you may not think that that's available to you, right? And I said, so just kind of change the question a little bit differently if you really want to help people. Mm -hmm. So it's just little things like that that are things that I experienced and that I thought, I wish someone had asked me this. Yeah. Or, you know, I wish I had at the time the courage to say this. And so now that I have that voice, as some people tell me, I just won't be quiet anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about the sacrifices you made as a black woman in the corporate environment, and then you get cancer and go through all that, and then you go back to the workplace and it's different. Did you feel like you lost traction on what you had gained? Did you feel at any point that, oh, everything you had done was for nothing? 150% yes. Yeah. The corporate world can be a funny place and not in a humorous way. I would say it's very much an out of sight, out of mind And when I went back to work, I realized that there were people who had taken the opportunity of my absence to elevate themselves. Mm. 
And I didn't expect that because I assume goodwill with everybody until proven differently. And I wasn't prepared for that. I just thought I could pick up and most of my team, they really held down the fort and they very much had the attitude of, we're going to wait until Charlene comes back because she's our leader. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were others who saw this as an opportunity to say, oh, well, Charlene's not here. So I'm just going to work my way into things that used to be hers. And so when I got back to work, I found those people to be very difficult. And if I'm being honest, they were all men Mm -hmm. and they all had the ear of the C-suite that I normally would have had had I been there. Mm. Right. Because the thing that people don't talk about is that when you're in that underrepresented group or you're that minority and you are the executive, it's still a fight every day. It's not like all of a sudden you become this principal vice president and everybody has open arms and say, we've been waiting for you. You know, people will say to me, well, gee, you, you've reached the top. What do you have to worry about? And I would say everything. So did you have a mentor? Was there a female executive or a personal female hero who inspired your journey? No, not ever. Wow. To be fair, you you have to understand I came up when women were still trying to fight their way through. So it was more of the uh, mentality of there's only room for one. Mm. Right. So if you were that one, then I guess it was kind of okay. But if there was another one, then it was going to be a fight to the end. And I found that very hard too, because while I'm not a soft pushover kind of person, but I'm not going to wallow in the mud over a job with someone, right? And that's why in my book, I talk about, you know, for women, and I think Madeleine Albright might have said this, you know, for women who don't support other women, there's just a special place in hell for you. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, because it's hard, you know, and often when you are that woman, and I I can speak for, for my own experience, just because you're there doesn't mean that you're listened to or that you have power or influence. Because for a lot of companies on the DEI journey, you know, they feel like, well, if we hire one, that's all we have to do. Mm. We don't have to make them feel valued or we don't have to listen to them. You know, they're just there. So we've done our job. And I think companies now are seeing the negative repercussions of that. Yeah. Because people and minorities, if if you say in the popular press, you know, minorities are running out of companies in droves because companies saw it as a pipeline issue. Mm -hmm. And so they think, well, once we've hired, you know, a few minorities, we're good. It's not enough. We want to be valued. We want our opinions heard, even if they aren't agreed with. Yeah. What is the single most important piece of advice you would give to someone uh, seeking to overcome obstacles in their own lives in order to live their best lives? It's choice, not chance that changes your life. Mm. And to recognize that you have the power to choose. And that can go in so many different directions in life. But people often, and, and what I've seen, and I have found myself in this situation as well, is people forget that they have a choice about where they are and what they do and who they hang around with and how they spend their time. And I could go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, make a choice and recognize that not making a choice is a choice. Yeah. 
right? And even if I look back, I have not come upon a situation where if I exercised my ability to make a choice, I wasn't better off. I was always better off. And But some choices are harder than others. I don't want to make it sound, you know, like it's just easy. Yeah. Because some choices are much harder than others. But we all are the directors of our own lives. And it's hard because sometimes the fear of the unknown is much worse than, you know, the fear of the known, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the devil, you know, versus the devil, you don't know. Right, right. Yeah. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes inaction is probably the easiest choice, but not necessarily and not usually the best. Yeah. Right, right. And I and we always think, you know, that we have time, right? We think, oh, Mm. I'm going to try this out for five more years, and then it'll be fine. Well, what if you don't have five years? Right. right? You know, make your choice. And I say this to people often, make the choice that works for you and stop thinking that you need to apologize for it. Right. Simply because someone else doesn't agree. Mm. And we run into that a lot. You know, I remember, and this is such a a silly story, but (laughs) when I was pregnant with my second child, who's she'll be 26 um, next week and um, her name is Savannah. And I wanted to name her Hunter because I just thought that was such a cool name. And everybody weighed in, including my in-laws. Oh, you can't name a child Hunter. That's a weird name. That's a boy's name. That's this, that's that, blah, blah, blah. I ended up, because of a book I read, The Prince of Tides, so I ended up naming her Savannah, which is a beautiful name, Mm -hmm. but I swear to you, she has the personality of someone named Hunter. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You know? And here she is, 26 years old, and I'm so mad that I didn't name her Hunter. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's a silly example, but it just goes to the point, though, that there are so many times when we don't do what we want to do because of other people. Mm -hmm. There are so many people out there who have our best interests at heart, but nobody has your best interests at heart more than you do. Right. Again, I use that as a silly example, but I, you know, I found the same thing when I decided to become a working mother and, you know, I was constantly judged by what I daringly call the mommy mafia. (laughs) 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 Right. And I finally, and that's when I learned, I said, you know what, I have to make decisions that work for my life and I'm not going to apologize for them. Right. I love that. That's the wonderful benefit of growing up. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So is this the beginning of your author journey? Do you think you'll write any more books? You know, my editor at our first meeting said, oh, I can't wait till your next book. And I said, you've lost your mind. I am not writing another book. (laughs) And I think I might write another book. Oh, it's still formulating and it has to come to me because I refuse to be a tortured author who spends two years trying to pull something together. It has to come to me and I have to have something to say. But now that I've been on this different journey in my life and this entrepreneurial journey, I could see writing a book, not in service of building my business, but in service of others because I have something to say that I think needs to be heard. Right. Nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're giving readers something to look forward to. So possibly, right? Yeah. Poss- possibly. Right. <laughs> never say never. Right? Never say never. Right. Well, Charlene, is there anything else you'd like to add today? 
You know, I am a big fan of yours and of Reader's Views, and I really, really appreciate just having the chance to talk with you and to have gotten to know you. You all are a great organization. And, you know, if there's anything that I'd want to leave your readers with, it's just to remember that you are enough and don't let anybody ever make you think that you aren't. Yeah. Well, Charlene, thank you so much for joining us today and and for sharing a bit about you and your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a great way just to start my day. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Charlene Willis, author of You Are Enough, Reclaiming Your Career and Your Life with Purpose, Passion, and Unapologetic Authenticity. To learn more about Charlene and her work, visit her website at charlenewillis.biz. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com.